Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 in a Bible study that I've entitled, Everyone Sins. Everyone. And we ended chapter 8 last time learning about the incredible faithfulness of Noah. His enduring patience during the most difficult time in human history. This worldwide judgment. And I mean, even using the word difficult, it can't really describe this worldwide judgment of sinful man. It was devastating. And yet in the midst of it all was the ark and the grace of God and the rescuing power of God. And if anything that we learn from the life of Noah is that you can live a moral, upright, righteous life in the power of God in the midst of a very dark world. That the world does not have to corrupt you. You don't have to go along with the program. But you can be extremely individually distinct in your relationship with Jesus. So notice now in verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this command to multiply is now repeated. Exiting the ark, it's a time of new beginnings. And we love new beginnings. We love new beginnings if it means the recovery after disqualifying sin or falling on our face. We love the new beginnings of taking steps of faith and going from glory to glory and strength to strength. And these are new beginnings even though you have to use your sanctified imagination to think of what a difficult world that they walked out into. A world that's just experienced the judgment of God. It was a world filled with death and devastation Or you could even say it was a lifeless world. And God's instruction in a lifeless world was multiply. Bring life where there is lifelessness. And after destroying man, why, why would God want to multiply again? I mean, God loves human beings. He loves his creation. I mean, when you look at it and you see what happened in the in the first group that was created, you might step back and go, why again? Well, because God loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He loves humans. He has a plan for you. He wants what's best for you and me, for your life to be fruitful, for you to multiply his love and grace to others. And you know this command here in chapter 9, verse 1, it was fulfilled. I looked up, there's a website where you can see in real time what the population is. And of the day I looked this up, the population now is 7,958,635. And it just keeps clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking. And God starts over with Noah instead of Adam. And notice in his command, he leaves off the instruction to have dominion over the earth. He leaves off that instruction. Why? Because Noah doesn't know it yet, but we can see it. He doesn't understand it yet in its fullness, but but we can see it today because we have this biblical truth unveiled that the dominion of the earth has been taken by Satan. 
The Bible says in John chapter 12, verse 31, that the judgment of this world, now is the judgment of this world, Jesus says. Now the ruler of the world would be cast out. And later on, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul would say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, who the minds of the God of this age has blinded. In Luke chapter four, verse six, it says, the devil said to him, all this authority I give to you in trying to tempt Jesus. The Bible says that the world is under the sway of the wicked one. And so you look around and you can see those things. A lot of people today, and maybe that's where you sit, listening to me right now, you're one of those many that blame God for the devastating effects of sin in this world. You're blaming God for what you see. You're blaming God for the murderous rampages and devastating things in schools and parades and and in life. But in reality, the blame goes directly to the devil. It lays upon his shoulders. Sin has wrecked it all. It's the devil alone that is the thief and a robber and a liar and a murderer from the beginning, causing and creating havoc around the world. But then we know that when Jesus came, he came to confront the devil. He came to meet him and defeat him face to face. Let me show you this. Would you turn over to Colossians chapter 2? I want you to see it in your Bibles. I'm going to read it to you from the New Living and in the New King James. But turn over to Colossians chapter 2 and consider the power of God. There are a lot of changes and a lot of different uh, legislation and laws that could truly help man today. But the true essence of help for man is for a man and a woman to be born again. That's where life change takes place. That's where a murderer no longer murders, where he no longer invents things in his mind. And you can't legislate morality. Morality is a hard issue. It is to the depth of who a person is in their relationship with God. And look what's available to you today. Notice with me Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. First, I'll read it to you in the New King James, Colossians 2, verse 13. The Bible says, In you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And listen to verse 15. Isn't this glorious? having disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Listen to how the New, King, or the New Living translates this. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature that was not yet cut away. And then God made you alive in Christ, for he forgave all of your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us, And he took it away by nailing it to the cross. And then he says, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. We're reminded of the victory when we look to the cross. The devil has been shamed. He knows that he has just a short time. And it seems as if he's pulled out all the stops. And you know what, believers, it's time to no longer cooperate with him. Don't offer him areas of your life through compromise and sin. Don't cooperate with his, but rather, as Paul says in Ephesians, stand fast. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you might fight the good fight. Jesus has taken back that authority over the kingdoms of this world. And as you live abiding in Christ, you live in Jesus' authority. One of the things the devil doesn't want you to know, I think it's high on the list of the things the devil doesn't want you to know, is the power and authority you have in Christ. That not everything just happens to you. That you're not just merely a victim of circumstance, but that you and I live in the victory of Jesus because he died and rose again. And you can live over the victory of sin and death. You no longer have to be bound or shackled to bad habits or to old ways of thinking. You can be reminded that you're a new creation in Christ. And while many people cooperate, as many of us, I, uh, many of us, we did, cooperate in the darkness of this world, now in the light of Christ, you live in victory. Generational change starts with you. The change in your family starts with you. And I know what a discouragement that can be to you because you think, well, it has started with me, but no one else is following. No, no, no. It starts with you, and then we allow God to do the work. And don't give up. But Ed, it's been five years. Okay, be faithful. It's been 10 years. Be faithful. It's been 15 years. Ed, it's been 55 years. And yet, look at you. You've been faithful unto the Lord. Remain faithful. Finish well. A couple of things I've been noticing in these last days that are very concerning to me, and I think you would join me in prayer. Number one is that the message of the gospel is no longer uh, exciting or encouraging, and now what we're seeing in many believers' lives in the, over the last few years is that they are doing exactly what the Bible predicted. Even though we may not have believed it could be, it's happening in our generation where the word of God, they're not enduring sound doctrine anymore, and so what? They're looking for teachers to submit themselves to so that their ears will be tickled, so that they will find a message apart from the simple, basic doctrines of God, some weird view, some weird addition, something that gets our eyes off the simplicity of Jesus Christ and to some weird teaching, some weird book, some weird prophet that is false to begin with, some new thing on YouTube, and not just loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And it concerns me. It concerns me over and over again to see people that were once a vital part of this church now following some weird thing and un unwilling to come back to the simplicity of the gospel. Church, I commend you to endure sound doctrine. Endure it. Receive it. Let God do a thorough work. And you know, there's a second thing I'm noticing in these days, especially in the last few years, is that many people are not finishing well. They're not finishing well. A lot earlier than I anticipated. Some that I've seen in my life have shocked me. You know how the Bible says that sometimes even the elect will be deceived. And I'm like, what, what does that mean? And it's like almost like the Lord's showing me. Here are people that, that you saw, that you walk in, they're, they're just in a place of deceit. They're in a place of backslidden. They're in a place of making decisions. And it just grieves me. And I'm sure you're seeing the same thing watching it with your own eyes, the stumbling and not finishing well. And I commend you, church, finish well, endure, persevere. Remember what we learned in Hebrews? Uh, there was that time where, where Paul was writing to the Hebrews and he said, you have need of endurance. And it's true. We have need of endurance, especially these days. Notice verse two. 
He says, and the fear of you and the dread of all, coming back to Genesis 9 now, shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. And every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. And so now God, instead of using the phrase dominion, he speaks of this dread. It's a different relationship with the animals after sin. And God has placed a dread in animals of man. And this is good because uh, if this dread wasn't there, we, they could have exterminated those eight people right away. And it's, it's all done because uh, the, the lions are upset about it and boom, just taking them out. But that is a good thing. Verse three, God never intended for man, notice, to trash the earth. We're to be good stewards of God's creation. It, it never intended for us to trash the earth or to trash the animal kingdom, but to wisely use it for health and for nourishment. And yet it's in human nature to take a good thing and ruin it. And here again is a place where those that would want to, especially in our state, but now most states, now that marijuana is legal, they say, well, look right here. It says, God has given me all the green herbs. So it's okay to be under the influence and smoke pot. And no, it's not okay. And if it was really okay, then grow some poison ivy and rub that all over your body. No, 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 that's not the herb that I want. I know, because you make a distinction, don't you? And so sometimes God makes a distinction for us. He says, well, God gave it all to us. Yeah, but not all of it's profitable for you. Not all of it is what God wants for you to be under the influence. We'll see that later on. We'll see that being under the influence makes you a very vulnerable person, even after the first drink, even after the first. We'll get to that in a moment. Notice verse four. He says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Verse six, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply it. Let me just speak to a, an interesting doctrine. It actually has floated through the church recently, and that is there, there is this false teaching that says after sin, man is no longer made in the image of God. Now man is made in the image of man. And I want you to notice after the fall, after the judgment, I want you to see the foundation of human government, how God is establishing capital punishment. One of the ways, speaking of this, he says after the flood, after sin, that man, it says in verse six, was made in the image of God. And it's just those that would want to catch your ear and go, well, man is, well, of course, in one sense, men are made in the image of men, in the sense that you carry along that human perspective and humanity and that sinful nature is passed on. But your value and your worth doesn't come from you being created in the image of another man. Your value and worth transcends humanity. You, your value, your worth is in your creator and the attributes you share with your creator. And that false teaching is very easily dismissed here to Noah. Now, this is the first prohibition of eating raw and bloody meat. It was both a dietary caution 
but also a spiritual truth. We'll learn later on as you continue in your reading, and those of you that read through the Bible this year, you read in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And not only do you have the value of blood here, but you have in this section the basic building block for human government, for any law-abiding society. And interestingly enough, God establishes here that capital punishment is essential in keeping the peace in any society. And notice that God instituted it, not man. This was not the creation of Noah. This is in the direction after the flood, beginning to repopulate and multiply. God institutes, and it becomes a key foundation in the Mosaic law, handed down through Moses. I know capital punishment is a hotly debated topic today, both sides taking very strong and passionate opinions. But according to Romans chapter 13, would you turn there with me? Romans chapter 13. According to Romans chapter 13, in these first few verses, capital punishment is the responsibility of human government. Notice Romans 13. And certainly it is misapplied in cultures. Certainly injustices take place when it comes to capital punishment or really standing before any human court. So God is not establishing that it will be carried out justly every time because apart from God, lots of injustice takes place. However, that doesn't undermine the building blocks that God gives. Notice in verse 1 it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. That's a statement of the sovereignty of God. Whether you agree with the government or you don't agree with the government, according to God, there's no authority except from God. Whether you like your boss or you don't like your boss, there is no authority other from God. God has placed the authorities in our lives for our good and for our discipleship. I don't want you to read Romans 13 that this says that, all author- that no authority is, there is no authority except from God, or don't read it this way, there is no authority that you don't like that isn't from God, or that you like. Don't insert that. It says, well, I love my boss. That's the authority from God. Oh, I can't stand my boss. That's not the authority of God. No, Paul is very clear, writing to predominantly slaves in a very oppressive authoritarian, anti-God government, the Roman government. And he says, the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And that's hard to accept when you don't like the direction of the government. It's a hard statement to accept. Many try to get around this. Instead of simply learning, like the Bible says, to mind our own business and live a simple life. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know that works in any culture? It works in any government. It works in any country. It works with any leadership structure as we just mind our own business, live simply before our God, love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Notice verse two. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to do good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. 
For he is God's minister to you for good. But that if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. We happen to live in a country with representative government where we're invited to participate. And I believe we should participate in what we've been invited to. I believe we should prayerfully walk into the areas of government, the areas of voting, and pray, not your conscience, but pray a biblical vote. Pray for a biblical decision. You know, your conscience isn't always reflective of what God's word says. And so take a step and honor God through participating. You know, not everyone around the world can participate in their government. Not everyone in the world can have their voice represented. Not everyone in the, in the world can step into and speak up and be heard or be listened to. However, in our representative, in our form of government, there will be seasons when you're unhappy with who was elected. And you will be unhappy with the laws of the land. And you will be unhappy with the way things are done. And that too is used by God to make you a better man and a better woman. I think at times our greatest danger is when things are going exactly the way we want them. I think our greatest danger is we see it all throughout the scripture. Your greatest danger in life is not to be in the midst of a trial. Your greatest danger is to be surrounded with prosperity, to have everything that you've ever wanted, to have no resistance. You see the nation of Israel, their greatest difficulties, their greatest times of idolatry, their greatest times of turning away from God were in times of great prosperity. It was in trials and difficulties that break us and shape us and mold us. And I believe in seasons in our lives, whatever your persuasion may be, there is somebody in office that you don't like, that you don't want, that you don't want, you don't, you don't want anything to do with them so that God might remind you that your trust is not in human government, but in the almighty sovereign God. And that we are to live for him and participate in every sphere of society as unto the Lord. But ultimately, we walk into that voting box. Ultimately, we step into a school board meetings and what? We don't trust the outcome. We trust the God of the outcome. And we live in such a way where our lives honor him. And might I just say it again, the reminder, it just thinks, you know, mind your own business, live a simple life, and love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor with your, as yourself. You're not gonna go wrong living a life of agape love even in times of great difficulty. And here God establishes with Noah the foundation. And truly, a nation that turns their back on God can expect the judgment of God. And we live in such a nation. A government or a governing authority that gives lip service to God or is just a full-blown atheist or a hypocrite will experience the judgment of God. And in those times when they personally affect us, we cry out to God. I think of in the times of judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And God came to rescue, and then they went back into the cycle. And God came to rescue, and they went right back into the cycle. And we see that continuing on through humanity all around the world even today. You see, you are not without a leader. You are not without a king. You are not without a judge. You have the almighty God not only leading and guiding you through his word, but dwelling inside of you by his Holy Spirit. Therefore, we have no permission or right to do that which is right in our own eyes. But 
If you choose to do that which is right in your own eyes, you can expect the consequences of such decisions. You seek to take things into your own hands, then you can find the great difficulty awaiting you. When attacking, I want to show you one more thing about capital punishment, though. When you go over to Matthew chapter 5, to undermine capital punishment, and perhaps you have this view yourself, and I commend you to God's word to examine your view, not an emotional, not a political, but a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview is necessary. And many people will take you to Matthew chapter 5 in the teachings of Jesus to say, you know, capital punishment's an invention of man. Jesus didn't even believe that. And let me just say, before I get to Matthew 8, Jesus affirmed capital punishment. He affirmed capital punishment being executed unjustly. And you go, ahead. where did he do that? By hanging on a cross. Willingly. To die for the sins of this room, of those in the car or in the kitchen on the radio, watching online. He affirmed capital punishment by submitting to it. And I'm grateful because it was through his death and resurrection that my life was transformed and yours too. But notice in chapter 5, verse 38, it says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And they'll take you here and go, look, this is, this is contradictory, Pastor, than what you just read in Genesis. But remember the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we are in Matthew 5, is Jesus speaking to his disciples, explaining the true meaning of the teachings of the day. You'll notice that phrase repeated over and over again. You have heard it said that he's referring to the teachings of the rabbis of the day, and there were many different schools, just like you know, the question comes up, why are there so many denominations? Why? Well, because there's so many people, so many leaders, and all these different opinions. It's nothing new. In the day of Jesus, they had very prominent rabbis with very contradictory views. It was confusing the people. They didn't know who to listen to. And then Jesus, God in human flesh, comes and says, I know what you've heard, but I'm telling you the truth. I'm bringing you back to the truth. I want to say to you, and these teachings were misinterpreted by the rabbis, and so Jesus quotes to them Deuteronomy chapter 19, which is also known as the Lex Talionis. And what that means is when a crime was committed, it was necessary to give out a punishment that meets the crime speedily and completely. And it was done for two reasons. Number one, it was done to deter future crimes. And secondly, it was a limitation. It was a merciful, it was a merciful instruction upon humanity to limit vengeance. Now, any of you that have felt vengeance deeply. You may not have used the word vengeance, but you would use a form of that word. And that is any of you that have ever sought revenge. Maybe even just felt it deeply. You were wounded and hurt so deeply that the response that welled up in you was not merely to hurt the other person in the same way you were hurt, but rather to hurt the person in the same way you were hurt and a little bit more or in some cases, a lot more. 
And in the instructions of the scriptures, it's important to realize that man's nature is to go beyond justice. Even in our own definitions of justice, sometimes we don't have the true definition as described by God. And so we can easily lay a heavier burden on the person that committed the crime than was instituted or what the crime deserved. And so capital punishment was instituted from the beginning and even continued on through the Old Testament and the New Testament. What Jesus is teaching here in Matthew is personal, not governmental, not the societal laws, but what he's teaching us is how we relate to one another personally. How we relate to one another individually. And so the context, anyone that would compare these two are comparing, as you might have heard, apples to oranges. It's not an equal comparison. Jesus affirms capital punishment in Matthew chapter 26 before Peter. Paul affirms it before Felix in Acts chapter 25. And here Noah is given it in the establishment. Come back to chapter 9 of Genesis again. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him saying, And as for me, behold, I'll establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that's with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you. Every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all the flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of the flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the very first rainbow in all of history. And we're in a time in Colorado where the rainbows are very abundant. And you know the first thing that happens when you see a rainbow? You look up. You look up. And although the distance between our culture and the Bible is vast these days, the world still knows the true meaning of the rainbow. And immediately get your eyes up in awe and wonder as the, 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 the sky declares the glory of God. But it's a sign. The rainbow is a sign of the perpetual covenant that God will not judge the earth in the same way as he did during Noah. Which, by the way, can we just speak on a personal level? This must have been very encouraging to Noah on a personal level. We think high in the areas of theology, but I want you to consider Noah for a moment, all that he's been through, all the faith that he's exercised, all that he has seen, all that he has heard, now coming out of the ark and wondering, what will he think the first time he sees rampant sin again? Will the judgment come again? Will the judgment come again? And it almost might even create a fear in him that the next time God speaks to him, it's going to be all over again. And so what does God do? He says, no, 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 Noah. It's never going to happen again this way. 
I just love that about God, speaking a word of encouragement to us. Speaking a word as we even learning during our time of uh, learning about the gift of prophecy, just speaking an affirmation of his promise. And then on top of that, giving Noah a reminder in the sky. Every time he saw it, I won't forget. I won't forget. God is faithful. I wonder how many signs or how many scriptures or how many things you have set up in your house that will remind you of the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God. We have the rainbow that speaks to all of us. The rainbow is a steady promise of God's faithfulness in his word, even today. Psalm 138, the Bible says that God has magnified his word even above his name. Now I recognize, and it must be spoken of, that today the thought of the rainbow is mocked. The colors of the rainbow, at least the primary colors and now so many others, have been co-opted and corrupted to identify an ever-growing and expanding group of people that desire to be defined by their sinful behavior. And it's very obvious. We just came out of a month where that becomes the great emphasis of our culture, of our world. But I want you to know that even as some try to co-opt and corrupt, it doesn't take anything away from the promise of God. It doesn't take anything away from his the, the rainbow in and of itself is a promise and its maker stands true. When you see the rainbow, remember, it's a sign and a signal grabbing our attention, reminding us of the heavens that declare the glory of God. And even in the ways that it's been co-opted and corrupted, it brings a reminder to think of the God who created the rainbow and to pray for those that our hearts are so hard in this season of their life that rather than identify themselves by their maker, they've chosen a whole different pathway. And by the way, church, that's not the only pathway of sin in this world. And it's not the only way people have corrupted and co-opted things that God has created. It's the way of rebellion and the ray of resistance. And I can tell you one thing that helps me navigate through a very sinful world is to remember where I came from. You know, it's not too many years ago that I'd lived in great rebellion against God, that my heart was hardened toward God, that I was a mocker and a blasphemer. It wasn't too many years ago. And here I am by the grace of God, a lover of God, born again, but listen, only by the grace of God, people praying for me, not giving up on me, willing to step into the mess of my own sin, willing to overlook my language and my behavior and my, all of that went, went through it. And so church, remember where you came from. And, and if you were preserved from all this crazy sin in the world today, then thank God for that and walk forward in the grace of God. Because the enemy's always using things to get you off your game, to get your attention away from the person created in the image of God. Because sin can be so repulsive, especially sin that's obvious and telegraphed. It can be so repulsive and it can be so sickening and it can be so difficult and it can be so hard that if you're not careful, your own soft heart that God softened. Remember what he promised in Jeremiah? The new covenant? Remember the new covenant? He prophesied it in Jeremiah. I'm going to take your heart of stone and what? I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh, a soft heart. But haven't you learned? Some of you could testify to this that over time even a soft heart can, be hard, can become hard again because of the world in which we live. Now, 
as we close up today, I want you to notice in verse 18 now. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Now Noah, some time has passed, and Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. So far, so good, Noah. A a very good career path uh, to walk into. But then verse 21, he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. We trace our lineage back to Noah and his three sons, but even after the flood and even after the judgment of God, I want you to notice God wants us to see that sin was still on the earth. Sin was perpetuated through this family, and sin is still on the earth. Noah, it says, started a career as a farmer. He planted a vineyard, must have been a successful vineyard, because he drank of the wine and was drunk, and there's always, you need to jot this down, you need to write it, you need, especially if you have a tendency toward alcohol, you need to write this down. Yeah, I want you to see the path. There's a couple things you can never miss here. The Bible is clear, and I want to be abundantly clear. It is not a sin to drink alcohol. The Bible is equally clear. It is not wise to drink alcohol. It's not wise, O King Lemuel, to, be, to take in wine. It's not wise. It's not a sin, but there are a lot of things that are not a sin that are not wise. So I want you to see the pathway. Drunkenness, the sin of drunkenness, can only happen one way. After the first drink. It can't happen any other way. It must be preceded by the first drink. Now, you don't have to plant a vineyard, and you don't have to be a farmer, but you do have to take the first drink. And you know from my own testimony, till the day I meet Jesus Christ, I will beg you not to drink. I will beg you. I know it's not a sin. I'm not rewriting the Bible. But it's not wise. It's just not wise. It's not a good testimony. It's not a good witness. It's not even necessary with so many other things that are available for you to quench your thirst. It's not even necessary. It just leads to so much difficulty and so much pain. And it just, it, so you got the pathway. Are you with me so far? Drunkenness can't happen without the first drink. Now, this is something you need to understand from Noah's life. After drunkenness, the very next word is and. And I'm warning you. Listen to me carefully. Anyone, young and old, there is always an and after drunkenness. They always go together. In this case, drunkenness led Noah to this weird nakedness from the essence of this word, some perversity where he becomes shameful before his family. Shameful. While this is the first mention of wine, I want you to note that it's connected with sin. It's not saying drinking was a sin. Neither does the rest of the Bible. But the first mention of wine is connected with sin. And this first mention and the first drinking 
of wine is connected to drunkenness. And drunkenness always has an end. Sometimes many ends. Sometimes it ends in absolute disaster. And anyone that's been delivered from alcohol, anyone that's been delivered from that lifestyle, they will testify to you that they're grateful. And like many of them, I can't say every, but I could say most, like me, they would say they never wish they took the first drink. I was a kid, I remember it like it was yesterday, the first drink I ever took of alcohol. It was nothing and insignificant. We were just being cool kids, graduating elementary school. Wow, what a great thing, super mature to do. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I also remember the night that I began my pathway of being delivered from alcohol now for 31 years. So that's a better night to remember uh, being born again and being completely delivered than it was the first one. I want you to understand with Noah, even the best of people are taken down by alcohol and drugs. Even the best. This is Noah, the man that found grace, the man that lived obediently, the man who walked with God, the man who the Bible says was righteous, blameless, and a preacher of righteousness, he too stumbles and falls. Why? Because man is frail and will falter, and everyone sins. Everyone. Again, drunkenness is associated here because there is a close relationship between intoxication and iniquity. There is a close relationship between drunkenness and debauchery. Noah becomes naked here. The implication of this is that it was perverse or twisted. And here's what happens. When a person begins to lose their normal faculties through alcohol, inhibitions and restraint are taken away. And really, alcohol is so often run to in times of difficulty and tragedy. It's a very popular coping mechanism, especially when you're down and discouraged. But alcohol will work against you when you're down and discouraged because technically alcohol is a depressant. And so if you enter in with a depressing, difficult situation, it's only going to make things worse. And you think about it, not just make, it doesn't just make things worse, but it takes away all your inhibitions. It, it wears down your ability to think. And, and even still in our, in our society, the law still says, don't drive while you're drunk. The numbers tend to change, but at least they still agree. There comes a point in time where you shouldn't be operating a motor vehicle. There comes a point in time where you shouldn't be watching your kids drunk, where you shouldn't be going to work. You shouldn't be operating heavy machinery. Like, even in our world still, against God, they say, look, there's just things you should stay away from for your own good and for the good of others. And what happens among believers today is there's just not a sense of desiring to live a holy life. Instead of holiness first, freedom becomes first. But there's no freedom without holiness. There's no freedom. Holiness comes first. God, by his very nature, is holy. And holy doesn't mean like living a perfect life. Remember, the word comes to us, and the definition of holy means to set apart. And God is truly set apart from us. He is God, we are not. He, he is sinless. And so when we walk in the holiness of God, we too are set apart from anything that might make us less useful for the kingdom, give us less of a witness in a world. And whatever culture we might be going into, whatever missionary field and endeavor, 
We would want to stay away from those things that would make us less useful and create a stumbling block between that person and Jesus. And as you step in under the influence, vile and nasty things can happen. Drunkenness always comes with an and. Please, I beg you. I I can make a strong biblical argument, and you go, well, I can argue with you too. Great. I don't want to argue. I won't even take that path. I'm not even interested in arguing with you. I'm just begging you. Take it from someone that lived it. You don't need it in your life. You just don't need it. There's so much more available to you in Christ. There's so much available to you to be used. Sober-mindedness. To have a clear head. To look someone in the eye and say, I walk in freedom, and and my freedom helps me to say no to things, not yes. (laughs) Oh, look at you, fuddy-duddy. You call me whatever names you want, but I'm telling you right now, I'm not ordering a drink across the table from you because I love you. Because I love you and your family and your kids. I don't want your kids walking in on, you know, me at Chili's over there and saying, look, daddy, daddy, he drinks and gets drunk just like you. No, I don't. No, I don't. Or you have a kid there and you've grown up in an alcoholic home and you're seeing all these liberties and you go, look, no, I don't want you to be reminded of how you were raised and the home you were raised in or the abuse that you experienced. I know it's not a sin. Don't misunderstand me. I know this will go out on the radio and I'm I'm not rewriting the Bible. I'm just telling you right now, I don't want you to follow in the path of Noah. And how do you avoid what Noah did here? Don't drink at all. Don't drink at all. Ask God to make you more usable. And all of this, (laughs) all of this, it's the topics because this is where it's here. But let me just add, it may not be alcohol for you. It could be something else. (laughs) That, That you are exercising freedom, but outside the holiness of God that creates a stumbling block between you and others. So it may not be alcohol at all. It may be something where you step into it. Well, this is not a sin in and of itself. But it's going to lead to being under its influence, and then it's going to lead to you being a very useless person for the kingdom of God. And in these last days, we need more useful people than useless people. Amen? I mean, that's why you're pressing in. That's why you're growing. That's why you're listening to Christian radio, Bible studies. That's why you are saying, God, man, that hurt. I don't like that guy. And I'm willing to stand there and go, you don't need to like me. I want you to love Jesus, and he'll lead you and guide you in his word. And there's great victory. And let me just say this. You're like, Ed, you're saying a lot. Yes, let me just say this. Let me say this. When you consider the life that some are listening to me right now that that are living in bondage to alcohol, thinking they could never get out from under it, They need more testimonies of men and women in Christ that not only have got out from under it, but have lived in victorious sobriety from the day they were delivered. That is a powerful testimony. And just think, if you just were one person saying, you know, even some of your testimonies are even more powerful, aren't they? Because you never started drinking to begin with. (laughs) That's powerful. In this world, with the peer pressure of the time, that is a powerful testimony unto the Lord. Well, we got two pages and two minutes, but I need, to, I need to draw this out, so let's draw it out. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. 
But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it back on their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Okay, a couple things. I forgot one last thing with drunkenness, just in case this comes up. Because the, the argument is made, well, you know, if you're in a different culture and it's acceptable in that culture, um, you can go ahead and let your guard down and drink with them. Listen, there are alcoholics in every culture. So the word no works just about in every language. Or no thank you. And you don't need to participate no matter what country you're in. You can say, no, do you have anything else? Do you have something else than that? Because you don't know, like just because something is culturally acceptable doesn't mean it's from the Lord. And we've just gotten away from a biblical way of thinking. It'll just keep us safe. So I, I forgot to mention that, but this one's here. I want you to notice the sons here because we have an example here in verse 22 that Ham saw the nakedness of his father. The word saw there, you can circle it. It means intense gazing. He, he just didn't glance as he's walking by dad. He stopped to stare, which itself gives his, a view of his rebellious nature uh, it's not just that, but there is something about Ham's sin here that Noah's sin now tempted his son to sin, and now he's sinning. Because sin begets sin. Compromise begets compromise. And so now here, if this would have never happened, at least it wouldn't have come out this way, but here there's a temptation now to Ham, and I believe Ham was happy his father was out of it. I believe his fa- he was happy to see you know, could you imagine the time on the ark? Oh, righteous dad. Oh, holier than thou dad. And who knows what language it was used, but in the corruptness of his heart, I think him staring at his dad, he's happy. Now he's got one up. His dad has failed and he can take advantage of it. And notice what he did. He went out and immediately told. He immediately told. And on the other hand, according to verse 23, when Shem and Jepheth heard about it, they didn't want to see it. They walked backwards to cover up their dad. And this is such a great picture for us in the church because you can be one of two types of people. You can be, I would say there's a lot of hams in the church today that love to spread the sin of others. They love to talk about the failures of others, exposing others. They, they like to gaze upon the sins of others and self-righteousness as if they don't sin. Everyone sins. Everyone. And they want to make sure everybody knows. And this is the root of the sin of gossip. Instead of helping according to Galatians and coming alongside a brother or a sister and helping them up, they would rather expose them. I mean, social media is filled with this. Happy and excited about the sins of others when the Bible clearly says we're not to glory in the sins of others. Where to, according to Galatians 6, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Don't destroy him or kick him when he's down. And so who will you be? Will you be Ham that's exposing or will you be Shem and Japheth who's covering? As Peter said. They're not going to be able to undo the sin or the consequences of the sin, but they don't need to make it worse. 
And that's the body of Christ. That's the true heart of agape. Love covers, not excuses. Love never excuses sin, never ignores it, never pretend it didn't happen. But we also don't make it worse. We don't choose to make it worse. And Canaan's heart is revealed and he's judged and he's cursed through Ham's sin. While his brothers would experience blessings with prophetic insight, Noah speaks of his son's descendants experiencing separation and rebellion. And you Bible students, you recognize most likely as you saw Canaan, what did it it immediately remind you of? One of the arch enemies of the people, God, the Canaanites. It started right here. And so as we close, I want you to notice verse 28. Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And the life of Noah, as recorded in the scriptures, just ends so abruptly. No talk of restoration, no talk of, it just ended the way it was. All of a sudden. And I just began thinking about how many people I've seen over the years who started out well, but didn't end it well. That's why it's been on my heart this week. And a few people very close to me, they just have burned, they just aren't finishing their waist well. They're still alive so they can get up and run again. That's my hope. But they're captured under the deceit of their own decisions and influence and all kinds of things. I think of people in, this own, in our own church family over the years who started out so strong and so bold and were so effective, but they're not even walking with the Lord anymore. Some of them have took an anti-God position. Some of them identify themselves as full-blown atheists now. I mean, they served and prayed here, baptized us with us in the reservoir. I mean, they, they were entrusted with people's care under the, in this church. And while God is gracious to us, they just haven't made it. They stumbled hard. And Noah, so strong in the beginning, his dis- final description, drank, drunk, naked. And one of his kids decides to exploit him. And so as we close, sin will rob you and steal from us. Just remember, sin will destroy. The wages of sin is always death. You can't get around it. I can't get around it. Gift of God is eternal life. But sin is destructive, harmful, and it's God's will that you stay away from it. Amen? Well, Lord, a challenging chapter tonight, but I know that you use it so that we might grow in our understanding of your heart for us. And even among all the liberties and freedoms that we have, God, give us wisdom how to use them under the cloak of not hiding things, but under the cloak of holiness, that we might ask you for direction, that we might ask you how to exercise our liberties. And even if we're the odd man out, even if we're the odd woman out, even if we get made fun of, even if we get excluded or whatever, that we would make our decisions, not even from the passionate plea of a pastor, but from the passionate plea of a savior, that we might live holy and righteous lives, depending upon you, living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And help us, God, not to be gossips and slanderers, but rather to cover and to help and to restore In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. 
For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.